Shortly after God's gracious redemption of Israel from Egypt, God entered into a special relationship with the nation of Israel, a covenantal relationship. And sometimes we refer to this relationship as the Mosaic Covenant or the Old Covenant. And that relationship, that covenantal relationship, included specific rules to live by or covenant stipulations fundamentally issued in the Ten Commandments, but really every command in Exodus through Deuteronomy contributes to the covenant stipulations for Israel. It contributes to what we call the Mosaic Law. Now, the Mosaic Law was God's gift to Israel that would enable them to set aside the old Egyptian way of life that was marked by bondage to sin, and it would allow them to take on a new way of life marked by holiness and righteousness and goodness and covenant faithfulness to God. So it's significant when you think about the law and when you read the Ten Commandments that they're introduced with this line. God says, I am Yahweh, the one who brought you up from out of the land of Egypt, indicating the graciousness of the law and the fact that the law was not a prerequisite to their redemption. It was a gift following their redemption. So the law was not something they needed to keep in order to experience redemption. Instead, the law was intended to keep the Egyptian way of life out of them, a way of life marked by enslavement and death. So for that reason, by the end of the Pentateuch, the end of the Mosaic law in Deuteronomy 30, Moses urges his listeners to choose life by obeying the law. So for Jews in Paul's day, who would have heard Moses' instruction, they would have thought to find true life, we ought to obey the law. For them, the law was seen as a positive good. It was the means of life. It was the source of their group identity. It was the source of right standing with God. And it was the whole category of moral and ethical guidance that they knew they needed to follow. So that reverence for the law that's been inculcated in Israel's history for a really long time was ingrained in the Jewish Christians at Rome, and that reverence for the law would have made them very uncomfortable with Paul's letter to them. The kinds of things that Paul said about the law would not have been well received by the Jewish Christians in Rome. In fact, I think they would have been shocked about the way he describes the law throughout Romans, but especially in Romans 7. So to understand Romans 7, what's a really, really difficult chapter. You know, this is for free, but this guy, Philip Melanchthon, said that the ancients struggled over this passage with tears, and they still got it wrong. So so this is a really hard chapter. If we are going to understand it, we have to read it from the perspective of these Jewish Christians who had a reverence for the law. So we need to hear what Paul says about the law throughout Romans. In Romans 2... Paul alleges that Israel's possession of the law produced hypocritical self-righteousness rather than the righteousness of God. And for that reason, it's insufficient for establishing belonging to God's people. And then in Romans 3, he goes on to make clear that the law cannot displace the reign of sin. It cannot provide justification or rescue you at the final judgment. On the contrary, the law will just reveal your sin and it will remove any excuse that you have for not doing what you ought to do. 
In the end, Paul says in Romans 3.28, the law is powerless to make people right with God. Then he goes on, arguing that because the law is powerless to produce righteousness, it's also ineffective for establishing a person or a nation's identity as one of God's people. In other words, there is no distinction between Israel with the law and all of the pagan nations without the law. Although Israel claimed this Abrahamic lineage and they located their group identity according to circumcision and keeping the law, Paul makes clear in Romans 4 and 5 that Jewish and non-Jewish people are equally sinful and equally in need of salvation. The law did nothing to change that. He goes on in Romans 5 to argue that every person, Jew or Gentile, is a descendant of Adam and therefore are in sin and in danger of condemnation and death. So the law was not given to remove sin. It was given to show people just how sinful they actually are. As a result, all people, Israelites and non-Israelites, need a new exodus. They need a new redemption because even though that old ancient exodus brought Israel out of Egypt, it did not take Egypt out of their hearts and it doesn't take Egypt out of our hearts. The law is powerless to accomplish redemption from sin. Finally then, when we read Romans chapter 6 and chapter 7 together, it's hard not to draw a close correlation between what Paul says about sin in chapter 6 and what he says about the law in chapter 7. It's almost as if the reign of the law is just as enslaving and captivating and hopeless as the reign of sin is, as Paul describes it in chapter 6. Ultimately, that's because the law becomes hijacked by sin. It was given as a good and gracious gift, but it's now associated with sin and death instead of the spirit and life. Can you hear how a Jewish Christian would not have liked the letter of Romans so far? They would have struggled with it, and we understand why. Viewed from that perspective, there would be many, many questions that would have been raised. Some of these questions may be kind of antagonistic, but I think giving them the benefit of the doubt, they would have serious and genuine questions. I want to give you three questions that maybe you're asking, but they certainly were, and it's these questions that really provide the shape of Romans 7. Question set number one is this, how is it that the law is no longer in effect? How is it that the law is no longer authoritative? The law didn't disappear into thin air. So how is it, Paul, that you can say that we are not under the law anymore? Question set number two. If the law is not good for us, is the law itself sinful? Is it the law that produced death? And why would God give us the law in the first place if he knew it would turn out so poorly? Maybe you ask yourself that when you're reading the Old Testament. Why did God even give this law? Question set number three. The law was God's gracious gift to Israel. We saw that in Exodus. So surely it makes Israel more righteous than the pagan nations. How can we abandon the law if it did at least that good? Doesn't the law solve our sin problem at least just a little bit? And for that reason, shouldn't we keep practicing the law? These are the kinds of questions that we should be asking in order to understand what Paul's going to say in Romans 7.
Now, as we get into this sermon then, I definitely want to affirm these questions are of historical interest to us. We want to understand what was going on in their minds. But I also want to suggest that if we can grapple with this, it will help us as we learn to read the Old Testament and as we learn to relate to the law. But even more importantly, in this sermon and in Romans 7, we receive a clear call to set aside every alternative solution to the sin problem by finding hope and salvation and moral transformation exclusively from God in Christ and through the Holy Spirit. So while most of us won't be tempted to run to obey the Old Testament law, I would expect that you can find points of correspondence with that desire and your desire to find hope and salvation and transformation in means other than Christ and the Holy Spirit. So let's work through this difficult text together. First, by observing that we have freedom from the law through our death in Christ. Paul's readers would have been asking how it is that they could simply set aside the law that God had given to them. How is it that the law is no longer authoritative over me? Paul responds that they can set aside the authority of the law because there is a deeper law, or as C.S. Lewis puts it in the Chronicles of Narnia, a deeper magic that is at work. The deeper law or the deeper magic is that when a person has died, they've died to the authority of the law and the law loses authority over them. They have not died physically, but they have died spiritually in their union with Christ and for that reason are no longer under the authority of the Mosaic law. Paul illustrates the point in the next verses by appealing to the presence of that deeper kind of law when it comes to marriage. Everybody knows, he explains in verses 1 through 3, that when a person is married, they're bound by law to their spouse. They can't go and marry someone else or they're committing adultery. But if their spouse dies, they can remarry and they are not committing adultery because they're freed from the law that bound them. So the basic principle is that death changes a person's relationship to the law. It changes the law's authority over that person. At the same time, um, however, freedom from the law is not freedom to go on to sin. It's not freedom for unrighteousness. Um, even though Christians have died to the law, as Paul just articulated in chapter 6, that doesn't mean you're free to go on sinning. You died with Christ for a purpose, and that purpose is to belong to somebody else, to belong to Christ. And here's where Paul's marriage illustration is especially fitting, because in other places in the New Testament, he refers to the church as the bride of Christ. So it's like he's saying, you were once married to the law of Moses, but in Christ you died to that marriage, and now you enter into marriage to Christ as the bride of Christ. You're free to belong to him. And in that freedom, we're enabled to participate in the righteousness of God. In other words, we're able to bear fruit for God, something that the law could never do. So when they belong to the law, Paul reminds his readers in verse 5 that they were more like Adam than they were like Christ. They were like Israel, failing all the time, instead of Jesus who lived an obedient life. They served sin, and that oppressive overlord kept paying them the wages of death. Therefore, Paul's Jewish readers 
needed to stop clinging to the law, and instead they needed to cling to Christ, who enables them to have new life and bear fruit for God, because it's through Christ that they receive the Holy Spirit. And here in verse 6, Paul describes the fulfillment of Israel's prophets and prophecies in the description of the new covenant in which the Spirit would be poured out and people would be able to obey and walk in the ways of the Lord. What Paul describes here is the new messianic age where God's people are no longer captive to sin and to the law, but are free in the Spirit to live for God, to really live and participate in the righteousness of God. This is a subject that Paul takes up more in Romans chapter 8, but he hints at it here. And I I want to get this into your mind. Paul is saying, you are no longer under the law. You're free in the Spirit, because he'll hint at this again later on in our text. We need to read ourselves into this story. We are beneficiaries of the new covenant and all of its promises. We are not bound by the law. If we want to participate in the righteousness of God, it's not by trying to keep all of the commands of the Old Testament. Instead, it's by living according to the Spirit and living a life of love. If you fast forward in Romans to Romans 13, Paul says that all of the law can be summed up in this command, to love. As one Jewish writer puts it, the rest of the laws are just commentary. Love is the heart of the law, and the Spirit enables us to love. So we ought to walk in the Spirit and live a life of love. And we're able to do it because God gives us the Holy Spirit. That is good news, and we need to cling to that. All right? So that's the answer to the first question. How come the law is no longer authoritative? Because you've died to the law, and now you have the Spirit. So we now move on to the second set of questions where Paul describes the goodness of the law and the sinfulness of sin. So his readers might have been asking, okay, so if the law was so bad, is the law itself sinful? Did God give us the law to trip us up? And how is that fair? Does the law itself produce death? And why would God even give us this law if it turned out so poorly? Well, Paul answers by defending the holiness and righteousness and justice and goodness of the law while explaining that at the same time, the law cannot bring about redemption and righteousness. Ultimately, he argues that the law is very good at pointing out sin, but the law can do nothing to defeat sin. The law can do nothing to redeem you from sin. So he illustrates the law's ability to inform people about their sin problem, but its inability to free them from that sin by drawing on the command, do not covet. Um, Coveting is a desire for something that's forbidden or for restricted. It's the final command in the Ten Commandments, and it's a good one to use to show how the law can reveal sin but not solve the sin problem, because coveting is an inner hidden sin of the heart. No one else can necessarily see when you're coveting, but the law shines a spotlight on how sinful coveting actually is. It makes sin visible. But as I've already mentioned, The problem is that sin cannot remove coveting, or the law cannot remove coveting from your heart. It cannot remove sin from you. In fact, it functions in almost a counterintuitive way where it makes that sin more enticing. Where as soon as you know, black and white, that that is sin, 
you somehow want to do it even more. It's like the classic situation with your toddler. When you tell them not to do something, now they are hell-bent on doing that thing. And we become literally hell-bent on doing the exact opposite of what God commands us in the law. We end up leveraging our imaginations and our creativity and our effort to do exactly the opposite of what God wants us to do. Now, if we just did what the law said, we would find life and freedom and happiness and righteousness and holiness and peace. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with us and the power of sin in the world that twists the good command that's intended to bring about life to cause us to operate in a way that ultimately brings about death. What it reveals to us is that we need help from outside of ourselves. that the command will only incite our sinfulness. It won't solve our sinfulness problem. Now, Paul builds on this brief illustration of coveting with something really, really unique. He shifts into what we need to call a speech in character, where he, he performs a speech as somebody else, He represents a composite of Adam and Israel in one voice, both of which were condemned by the law when they ended up sinning instead of finding life in response to the law that God gave them. Now, to see this, you have to follow the illustration carefully. And if you have your eyes on verses 9 through 11 and you're listening carefully to me, you'll see how Paul is not talking about him but he's talking about Adam and Israel and every single person who receives a command from God and realizes that it just exposes sin and it doesn't solve the sin problem. In verses 9 through 11, he draws us into the story of Adam and Israel. For some time, both Adam and Israel were living without receiving a direct command from God. But sometime after Adam's creation and sometime after Israel's redemption from Egypt, they both received commands from God. Adam received the command not to eat from the tree in the middle of the garden, and Israel received the commands in the Ten Commandments and the rest of the Mosaic Law. But what those commands did was to incite desire. Adam desired the forbidden fruit. He coveted, and then he disobeyed. Israel, too, disobeyed when they received the law before they even left the foot of Mount Sinai. All that the law did was point out their sinfulness and expose it. Even though God's law to both of them had been intended to bring about life, God's command to Adam should have resulted in a life of flourishing in the garden. God's commands to Israel should have resulted in a life of flourishing in the promised land. But sin This cosmic power deceived them both and took advantage of the law and twisted God's word and said things like, did God really say? And does God really want what's good for for you? And he deceived them. And the cosmic power of sin is at work deceiving people into walking in the ways of disobedience where they find death instead of life. So the law doesn't bring death. Sin brings death. But the law is powerless to solve the sin problem. So in that re-narration of Israel's experience and Adam's experience, Paul's readers, especially his Gentile readers, probably would have related very well. They, they would have come into contact with Jewish Christians who were telling them about this Torah, this Mosaic law, and maybe they would have even tried to obey it. 
and they would have gone from a time where they were living without the law to seeing just how sinful they were with it. Paul's point then is that the law is holy, the commandment is holy and just and good, but it cannot solve our sin or our death problem. At the end of this, you might be asking, then why did God give the law? Why would God give the law in these commands if it wouldn't help them? Well, God works all things together for good, even the corruption of the law, so that people would become aware of their problem and know that they need help from the outside. So even though the purpose of the law to give life has been hijacked by sin and twisted and corrupted, ultimately, the law helps us acknowledge that we need rescue, we need salvation. And that is an interpretive tool when you read the Old Testament. One of the, when, when you read the Mosaic Law, allow it to expose the sinfulness of your heart, but allow it to draw you towards God, where you'll find the only solution in Jesus. What it does at the end of the day is to admit that all of humanity, we have a sin problem and we need a Savior. All right. Question set number three, Paul answers by describing the hopeless experience of life under the law. Um, and, and this, I would say, is the most challenging text in Romans and that we're going to consider this morning. So I just beg of you to have your Bible out if you have one, be looking at these verses and engage really carefully mentally here so that your heart can be opened up to receive what I think God might have for you from these verses. Um, so far, Paul has answered all of the questions, but now he anticipates questions like this. Um, but wasn't God's gift of the law gracious? Didn't God's gift of the law help Israel? Doesn't the law solve our problem even just a little bit? Doesn't it make Israel better than all the pagan nations? Well, Paul's going to answer that by arguing that when someone becomes free from the law, they can get a rearview mirror looking at life under the law, and they'll see that it was not great at all. At best, you will recognize that if you try to live under the authority of the law, the best that can happen is that you will agree with the law about right and wrong and good and evil, but ultimately, you'll still find that you cannot do what is good and right because the law does not empower you. It just condemns you. So the law cannot solve the sin, even in the slightest. It cannot solve that problem. So don't cling to it. And what Paul's about to do here in these next verses, in 14 through 25, is to describe the experience of someone condemned by the law and under the authority of the law, without Christ and without the Holy Spirit. Now, what I'm trying to do here is reemphasize that the I in this text, when he says I, he's not talking about himself as Paul the Apostle. He's not talking about you as a Christian. He's talking about someone under the law, someone who's in sin, who's captivated by the law. These verses sound like a description of someone's tortured self-loathing, the moral angst that comes when you know what is right and you keep doing what is wrong. And what Paul is saying to his readers is that every pagan philosopher has felt the exact same way. Every person just intuitively knows that they fail to live up to the standards of right and wrong, even if they have a skewed perspective of what right and wrong is. 
So what he's trying to do is say that Israel is in no position, no better position than the pagan nations. Now, many people, when they read this text and interpret this text, they would say that this is descriptive of the normal Christian experience. I am disagreeing with that. I want to be very clear about this. This is not a text describing you. It's a text describing being in Adam, Israel under the law. It's not a text describing our life and our battle with sin, even though aspects of it might resonate with us. Now, this conclusion in my argument is substantiated in two ways from the text. First, you need to read Romans 7 as part of the larger unit of Romans 5 through 8, where Paul sets up three contrasts. In Romans 5, he contrasts Adam and Christ. In Romans 6, he contrasts slavery to sin and slavery to the law. And now he does an extended contrast where in Romans 7, he contrasts life in captivity to sin and under the law with life in Romans 8, where we have the freedom of the Spirit and newness of life in Christ. So chapter 7 and 8 really belong together. I just cannot preach it together. But you need to keep that contrast together so that you can see that this description in Romans 7 is not a Christian. It's the opposite of the Christian life in the Spirit. The second easier point of reference to prove what I'm trying to say is in Romans 7, 14, where the, where the character giving the speech, the in-Adam person, the Israel, identifies himself as being of the flesh and sold as a slave under sin. If you've just read Romans 6, does that describe a Christian? No. Christians are not slaves of sin. We are slaves of God. Now, it is true that sometimes we fumble up. We, we give ourselves back over to slavery in service to sin. So there, that's why this text might resonate with us. But it's, this text does not describe your core identity. It doesn't describe who you actually are. This text is not you. What I'm trying to tell you is that if you adopt this text as your self-understanding, it may become a self-fulfilling prophecy where you constantly give yourself over to slavery to sin. If you read Romans 7, 14, where the I says I'm a slave under sin and you say, yes, that's me, it will be no surprise that you will not tap into the aid of the Holy Spirit to find freedom from sin. Now, I don't want to take away from anything if this text has helped you in your struggle with sin. I was talking with someone just yesterday who said there was a point in my life where this text really resonated with me and it helped me. And I just want to say that's God's great grace to allow your misunderstanding of scripture to help you. But now that you know better, don't continue on in the old way of misunderstanding. Instead, look at this as the old life under sin and look forward to Romans 8 and have a better grammar for your description of yourself so that you can see yourself as God sees you and so that you can live consciously in the new life in the spirit. Okay, I I think I've explained the general outline of what Paul's doing there. He's describing someone with with moral angst and frustration, ultimately, ultimately to raise the question of where will salvation come from? Who can save this wretched person? And the answer, of course, is Jesus. Jesus alone. 
Okay, so if we're reading this text, you may feel like I just stole a text from you because I'm saying it's describing a non-Christian instead of a Christian. So I want to give you four ways that we ought to consider responding to Romans 7, 14 through 25. I've already hinted at this, but I want to make it explicit. First, when you read Romans 7, 14 through 25, find your identity in Romans 8 and not in Romans 7. Let that tortured sense of frustration that you pick up on in Romans 7 remind you of what life outside of Christ and apart from the Holy Spirit ultimately leads to. It ultimately leads to frustration and moral angst. And then remember that you have a new identity and a new life in the Spirit that's described in Romans 8. Allow that description to change the way you see yourself and your experience of life as a Christian. Um, It is right for us to admit that we sin, but it isn't good for us to fail to move on and to praise God for the salvation that he's actually doing. Don't rob God of worship for the new life that he's given you. And don't rob the Holy Spirit of its work in your life by insisting that you're still a slave to sin. Read Romans 8 and praise God for the gift of grace and the possibility of victory in Jesus, our Redeemer, who is himself our joy and righteousness and freedom and steadfast love and deep and boundless peace. All right? Number two, second, if you're reading Romans 7, 14 through 25, and it is deeply resonating with you, maybe you're reading that text today and you're saying, I know consciously that this is not me, but it sure feels like me. This feels like my experience right now. There is sin present in my life, and I feel like I am a slave to it. What what I'd like you to do is to respond by reaffirming consciously that there's an incongruity between who you are and what you're experiencing right now, but that your experience is probably a red flag that you need to bring somebody else into that sin struggle. If you feel so captivated by sin that Romans 7 sounds like you, you need to access the resources for spiritual growth that God has given you, which includes the church and other Christians who can help you see what it looks like to move into a Romans 8 kind of life. Many of us go forever in our life convinced that Christians are basically in bondage to sin in every way forever. That's not true. It is true that we'll always struggle with sin, but it's not true that Romans 7 needs to be your day-to-day experience. So if it feels that way, please talk to somebody. Talk to a faithful member here. Talk to myself or another pastor. We want to help you grab onto the life-giving freedom that God offers in the Spirit. Third, I would urge you to refuse to look at the Mosaic law as the solution to sin and evil in our day and in our lives. Without going into detail, I, I want to let you know, and some of you already know, that there are people out there who are saying that the Mosaic law is actually something that could bring about righteousness in our modern day. Um, There are systems of theology that say the modern state of Israel needs to return to the Mosaic law and building the temple and reinstituting sacrificial systems. Paul's teaching here should should leave that out of bounds for Israel and for every other nation. There, There are some people 
that are gaining popularity in our world right now called Christian nationalists who, in, in many of them, adopt a theology called theonomy. And what they think is that for a nation to become more righteous, to escape all the problems of evil, would be for that nation to incorporate the Mosaic law into their national governing system. And, and these people are getting louder by the week, it seems, at least in the world that I'm in. And this text is a clear command from Paul that that is a non-starter. So if you're talking to friends who have been caught up in this Christian nationalism and theonomy, and they think what we really need is for our nation to incorporate the Ten Commandments into everything and the Mosaic Law from Exodus to Deuteronomy, you need to reject that line of thinking. That is not how God will bring about his righteousness on planet Earth. It will be through Jesus, crucified and risen, pouring out his spirit on those who respond with repentance and the obedience of faith. I won't say anything more on that, but I know that this can be particularly sticky. And as you go into Thanksgiving with family members, you, there's always a cousin who's adopted some weird position. And I want to equip you here. Um, don't fall for it. And speak graciously and kindly, but clearly and firmly, that that is not what God wants. Fourth, and finally, as you read Romans 7, 14 through 25, use points of contact of that description of moral frustration um, with people who you know who feel captivated to sin, who feel like they never measure up. Use it, I'm trying to suggest, in an evangelistic type setting. Now, in a ex-Christian world where people don't know the Bible and maybe don't even believe in God, I don't think it's helpful to quote the Ten Commandments to them and say, look, you've lied sometime, you're going to hell. They're not going to care about that. that, that they won't feel a moral frustration based on breaking the Ten Commandments. But most people, even though they don't have a great source for their norms of good and bad, most people that you know will tell you that they feel like they just can't live up to the standards they have for themselves. Most people will tell you they hate themselves at the end of the day because they keep failing, whether it's in their role as a parent or in some other way. You know, whether, whether it's the Muslim friend that you know who feels like he can just never measure up to the Quran, or whether it's your agnostic friend who loves Jordan Peterson, but he keeps failing to live out the 12 rules for life, or, or whether it's your Buddhist friend with the eight rules for the noble life and they don't measure up to it, or whether it's your adamant atheist friend who somehow has a really clear sense of right and wrong and justice and injustice, and especially of social justice, and they see where they fall short time and time again, allow points of contact between their moral frustration and the description in Romans 7 to help you help them ask the question of who will save this wretched person from this body of death and allow it to be an entry point to show them Christ who does provide freedom. Because when people recognize their moral frustrations and failures, they're just one step away from asking that question and hearing the answer. Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the only answer. So allow those points of contact to give you an opportunity to witness to the life-giving power of the Spirit that frees from all other salvation programs and systems of righteousness. In Romans 7 then, We've been given a glimpse back into our in Adam reality of old, 
we're given a look into the under the law life of Israel. We're given a glimpse back into slavery to sin. And we're reminded that we have ultimate freedom through Christ alone. We've been reminded of that great rescue. And in that reminder, we rejoice and sing, to this I hold. My hope is only Jesus, not the law, not my striving, nothing else. All the glory evermore to him, so that when our race is complete, at the end of the day, at the end of our life, and at the end of our everydays, our lips will still repeat that our righteousness comes not through me, through Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray together. God, we are grateful for the law that does expose our sin and shows us the sinfulness of sin that points us to our need for salvation. I pray that none of us would look to anything or anyone other than Christ to find that salvation. Would you draw all of us in our wrestling with sin back to the Christ who saves, whether it's for the first time or in our daily experience, and would you give us freedom through your spirit? In Christ we pray, amen.